Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. So before I introduce this week's guest, I just want to thank everybody who is a regular listener for being so loyal. And if you're a new listener, I'm so happy you're here. You could just take two minutes or less and rate me on iTunes. Five-star review would be awesome. That helps me keep current on the charts and really helps spread the word about the podcast. Today on the podcast, I have the lovely, brilliantly talented Laura Richards. If you're a fan of the podcast, this is now the third time I've had Laura on. Go back to our March 11th interview. We talked about uh, leaving Neverland, the Michael Jackson documentary, as well as some about R. Kelly. So this is really our continuation of the Serial Predator series that Laura and I are apparently doing together. Laura is a criminal profiler. She's a victim's advocate. She is extremely talented. And we are going to speak about Untouchable, the documentary that's streaming now on Hulu about the Harvey Weinstein case. And Laura is here. I'm very happy to have you for my third time. Thank you for having me on. I'm very excited. And yes, it does seem to be a recurring theme and pattern here. I mean, unfortunately, this gives us a lot to talk about. It does. And, you know, I'm really pleased to be able to talk about um, Harvey Weinstein and the untouchable Hulu documentary, which, I mean, I just got to say it was so angry making and so difficult to sit through. Incredibly well done. Um, But there are these themes that just keep coming out, the same patterning, the same behavior, the same pathology. Um, so thank you for covering it. And I'm really pleased to be talking with you about it. Me too. And and what's so different about having you on and why I think people, I get so many downloads, especially when you come on, is that, you know, you have a different approach. You're obviously a producer as well. You're on camera. So you get it. You sort of get how things are made. And, and you know, we can speak a little bit to the production value of the documentary. But but you come at it from an expert and law enforcement point of view and psychologist point of view. And re- and as an expert in this particular area, of course, of control and abuse, and you just have insight that I think, you know, people need to hear. And when I saw it, I texted you as we do right away and said, would you come on? Because you're exactly who I want to talk to about this. It made it enraged me as well. I, as you know, I sometimes rabbit hole down certain cases. This one, I knew probably 98% of everything that was in the doc beforehand because I I followed it so closely, but there was still some new information, new witnesses, new spins that I didn't know and and arranged me all over again, frankly. Right. And how much did you know going in? Well, I mean, I knew a fair amount, obviously, when uh, it first, well, in fact, when you say first emerged, of course, things have, have been emerging across decades. But in terms of the tipping point, I guess... Um, you know, Ronan Farrow's work and with the New York Times and the New Yorker, I think really did lay it bare that we're not just talking about one person. We're talking about multiple women. In fact, over 90 women. And there's even more. You know, there will be those who are still sat there with the secret, those with that burden, those with that heavy soul who still feel that they can't talk about it. So but I didn't know it all. And I certainly didn't know about his whole trajectory of, you know, how he got to. Uh, this position of power where he called himself the sheriff of New York and that he felt that he was running the town. The fucking sheriff of the shit-ass town. What a right. what a quote. You know, it's interesting, just as a, a tidbit to that you mentioned, you know, all these women that will still keep secret and how hard it is and 
you know, somebody asked me the other day, why do you watch these? And I said, I, I have to watch them for the victims. If you're brave enough to come out and how hard that is to talk about, I'm going to listen to your story every time. Oh, yeah. And so um, just to speak about Harvey in particular, because that's what we're going to do. Um, and I'm not calling him Harvey like a friend. It's just an easier. That's kind of how he was known. So, you know, I'd rather call him the monster, frankly. Um, but he had so much power that right before the story broke in the New York, broke in the New York Times first in 2017. And then in the New Yorker very soon after with Ronan Farrow's piece, um, Ben Wallace, who's a friend of mine, and he's a prolific writer specifically for New York Magazine. He reached out to me and he said, do you know anybody who knows Harvey Weinstein? I'm trying to do a piece on his decades of abuse. And I had, of course, heard about it. I definitely did not know the extent of it, but I knew that he was a shithead and that he was, you know, did I know he was raping women? No. Did I know he was, you know, at least a serial cheater? Absolutely. But I knew he was an abusive person. And I reached out to somebody who I know, actually two people who I know who have worked with him way back. And I reached out via email. And the response I got back was, I don't know what you're talking about. And obviously we had spoken about him and obviously they know that at the, and I said, it could be off the record. You don't have to use your names. And they were clearly so scared to even have an email exchange about it that they said, I don't know what you're talking about. And that to me, and it was two men actually also, and I'm not faulting them in the way that, you know, everyone was terrified. And, and that just speaks to the power that this man had over pretty much every aspect of the entertainment industry. I mean, he was the number one guy, more than Les Moonves, more than anyone else. Right. I mean, there's so much that you just said there that, you know, my head was just, <laughs> uh, my thoughts were, were spinning. But yes, I mean, he certainly had this reputation for ruthlessness and for, and I'm putting this in inverted commas, fits of anger. You know, and when someone has fits of anger, you have to look at their behavior um, and you have to look at their behavior in terms of normally it's about a control issue. And I'm going to use the words coercive control, Thank which you. will come as no surprise to you. Our favorite term. Our favorite term. And can term. you, again, for those who haven't heard you speak before about it, can you again define what coercive control is? Yeah, well, coercive control is a, is a strategic pattern of behavior, which is aimed really at trying to dominate or create codependence, um, but keep somebody really in line. So, And it tends to be psychologically and emotionally rooted, but it can be physically too. So fear of physical and or sexual repercussions. But it's about ensuring that you have utter domination of another and you coercively use tactics, i.e. the things that matter to them the most. So you know, with Harvey Weinstein, I'm going to call him Weinstein because I'm not going to uh, give him the, the, the name Harvey the, because to me it always sounds very familiar on first name terms. And this is somebody who is now charged and who will be put before the courts. I, I've heard actually it might be put back. It might not be January now because there was another indictment on August the 21st, which we'll talk about. Um, and I'm not going to talk about the women as accusers. I really struggle with that term in the uh. media because they are victims who have come forward and told their stories. And again, seeing those terms, those words, the accuser, which is what we saw with Michael Jackson. Um, and interestingly, actually, Harvey Weinstein did use the same PR company, Crisis Team Sunshine Sachs, as Michael Jackson. So is it a surprise that we see these narratives tracking in the media of the accused? Well, 
other women have come forward and they have made these allegations against him. And he would use the things that he understood about all of them, i.e. many of them were uh, budding young uh, actors who were looking to him as sort of the star maker. That's what people saw him as. And this kind of Hollywood ideal, you come to Hollywood and, you know, you make it big and this kind of romantic notion where he was seen as the person who would make it happen. Now, he understood that. He understood people's vulnerabilities. Um, women much more so, although he was abusive to men too. He saw himself as sort of the, the, the godfather type character and he traded off of that fear dynamic. Well, with women, he would basically give them no choice. And I want to make it absolutely clear, he would move the boundaries. So if somebody was going to meet with him uh, and he would take a meeting, it would be originally set in an office or in a hotel, but in a not in a hotel bedroom. But when the, the girls or women arrived, then the rules had changed and it was then going to be in a bedroom. And sometimes an assistant, a female assistant would tell them that, but each time... The, the females that I've heard from, and certainly in the documentary, they said that they felt uncomfortable. They felt that this was strange, but they understood how busy he was. So you rationalise it and you think, well, maybe he's just super busy and I'm really lucky that he's going to see me anyway. Right. And then when he shows up in a robe and all of a sudden takes it off and says, can you give me a massage? Then we start to realise this is not normal. Absolutely. From, you know, Ashley Judd to uh, all, all the women who spoke out, the same things happened and they felt it wasn't normal. But then you have to think about what options and choices you have. You have one, the choice to leave, which is you piss him off and therefore he ruins and limits your career. And that's what he said he would do. Do you know who I am? I'm the most powerful man in this town. The and that's second, what he did. That right, was his attribution. That's exactly what he did. And many women have attested to that. And then you have the other option is to stay. And I think, you know, Erica Rosenbaum and, and numerous women um, saying, and you can see just the conflict and pain in their faces, you hear from them, well, maybe if I just stand here and, you know, they then start to disassociate and it becomes a surreal, they're looking down on themselves. And maybe if I, it will all be over in a few minutes and that's what he says. And then he does what he wants to them, whether it's a sexual assault, whether it's he makes them massage him, whether he makes them watch him shower, whether it's he touches them from behind and, and masturbates. Um, all these things are indicative of they are sexual assaults. And of course, some of them he did rape as well, but they are all rapes in a sense. Yes. Thank you for saying that, because, uh, you know, sex, you know, you see journalists write about, you know, uh, sexual impropriety, sexual harassment was the way the original headline in the New York Times, it was sexual harassment. Or a grope, you yeah, know, making it grope. sound like it's something yeah. uh, much lesser. Right. Well, these are all, you know, in invasive. These are all affronts. These are all coercive tactics. And sexual coercion actually normally does go hand in hand with coercive control. And most professionals don't talk about that. So I do want to allude to that. And, and when we dress it up as workplace violence or campus violence or abuse of power, we miss the essence of what it's about. And what it's really about is coercive control and exploitation. And it's about men's violence and abuse towards women. So I'd like to give it its Yeah, and I'm glad name. you said that because I want to follow up on that, which is that I think there's also a misconception that, and I've heard this before, you know, him and others like him, well, they're just a sex addict. They just need sex all the time. But really, 
just speak to the fact that it really has nothing to do with sex at all. It does not. It has everything to do with power and control. And that's why he would say, do you know who I am? I'm the sheriff of this town. All of that is about him exuding his power and control and coercing these girls and women so they felt they had no choice. And that's what you're looking at. When I listen to women talk, when I work with victims and survivors, what you're seeing on shows like you know the documentary R. Kelly, The Lifetime, Surviving R. Kelly and the Hulu Untouchable is what I listen to day in, day out of women's accounts. And actually seeing and hearing is believing because too often someone else takes the narrative and with someone as powerful as Harvey Weinstein, he had PR people all around him. He had lawyers that were all on his uh, bankroll to silence and to make things go away. And actually in a very dark sense uh, make things go away with um, you know things like Black Cube and Mossad you know we're talking about him throwing a huge amount of money and very uh, not just coercive tactics but very terrifying and life-threatening people to make the problems go away so actually you can see some of these young women who are 23 and I'm thinking about Zelda in particular you know who disappears herself to Guatemala because she understood the risk uh, of speaking out or going against him and and women and girls and men were terrified of him with good reason yeah Zelda is um she worked at Miramax in in England and um a young assistant came to her talking about uh, her abuse at the hands of Weinstein. And, uh, and she basically said, we got to get as much money out of him as we can. And you have to see the doctor kind of see how it unfolds, but she absolutely wanted to disappear. And I thought she was extremely brave to speak. She out. really was. Well, just to say about the money, she said, we want to, we wanted to make the figure so large right. that it was so clear he was guilty. Yes. That the point, money yes. that was being, that would transfer was about his guilt and admitting to his guilt. It wasn't just about taking money for the sake of money. Yes. So, thank again, you for clarifying. Exactly. When people, you know, make allegations and when they are victimized at the hands of powerful people, the first first thing that's done by a PR team or lawyers is to discredit right, the people they just who are wanted money. the accuser. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, no, the victim, the person who is coming forward to share their story, to discredit them and to make it look like they just want money. Right. And you, you made a good point before about the way that he would coerce victims and uh, and they had a choice, you know, whether they leave and face, um, you know, face the backlash or succumb for lack of a better word. And, you know, what's important to note there is that he was a very big guy in stature, just physically, a, physically, yes. you know, he looked like a big ogre, uh, disgusting, just, just monstrous. But also, um, you know, a lot of these women were small little women that literally could not physically overpower him. So the one that, that really got me was this woman, Nanette Klatt, who talked about him demanding to see her breasts and, she had night blindness and couldn't didn't have peripheral vision. And yes. he, knowing that, because again, like you explained with course of control, he would home in on exactly her weak spot, which was that she didn't she couldn't see in a dark situation. And he forced her to go out when she would she wouldn't do it. And when she wouldn't He wanted to see her breast, didn't he? And then he, he, he said, to see Why? Her it's just five minutes just to yeah. let me see your breast. It's always breasts. five minutes too. Just just get it over with. I mean it's so sickening. So he, he forced her to walk, walk down a dark staircase knowing she was partially blind and that would put her at risk. And the way that they showed the sort of recreation of the dark staircase, I mean, you just got chills down your spine. Absolutely. How anyone could be that sick. That callous 
and showing complete disregard for somebody else. And you know what, Elisa, the other thing that's interesting about him always saying, well, it's just a couple of minutes is because he knows what's in their heads. Right. So again, when an abuser knows what's in your head, they literally tap into each of those points. And therefore, if the woman is thinking, well, yeah, OK, it would be career limiting if I don't do this. It is just a couple of minutes. So so what? And, you know, they try and reframe it so that they can live through it and get through it and then compartmentalize it and, and put it in a dark box in the recess of your mind. And that's what women and girls do. Every day when we experience abuse, whatever type of abuse it might be. And I think, you know, Paz de la Huta actually really got to me in terms of her account. But, you know, and she basically said that he was repulsive. He was repulsive physically to her. But she saw other women hanging around him and therefore she kind of thought, well, if everyone else is doing it, well, maybe it's okay. But he just kept pushing on her boundaries the whole time. And she says that he raped her and I believe her account from what she's saying and she knows that she is going to have to give that account and be discredited but she has lived with that secret you know and that really does wear heavy on your soul but when you just hear woman after woman after woman in the same pattern of behavior you know and so for me uh, it's not about the fact that this is a single person this is about you know 90 plus and this is also about him trying to claim the narrative by making it out when he was confronted on camera where he just says well it was a mistake you know everyone makes a mistake i deserve a second chance i'm a good man it's unbelievable didn't you find it interesting i'm wondering what the psychology is here that that was his initial reaction right when tmz got him and his stupid statement you know which is uh i gotta work on myself i got work to do so he basically admits there's a problem however he now maintains that he, every single act, every single person that's come forward was all consensual. Well, which one is it? Was mm. it con if it was consensual, then why do you have anything to fix? What, why, do right. you, why do you need a second chance? Well, flipping the script. I mean, originally, yes, he thinks that he can talk his way out of it. I mean, he is a Harvey Weinstein after all, and he's managed to do that decade after decade. In 2005, when allegations were made and he paid off um, the actor and, you know, his PR team spin it yet again. And he does talk about his wife, Georgina, Georgina Chapman, who's a British fashion designer, you know, and the fact that she's going to stand by him. Well, I mean, when you get 90 women coming forward. Yeah, you can't do it anymore. Yeah. And she her account actually really did get to me, too, because she said that she didn't know what he was doing. Well, there's one thing about being some people call it a ladies man and right. by the way ladies man you should always check what that really means because in my experience it means that somebody who charms and uses and abuses women mm -hmm. but that kind of is gives somebody a get out of jail free card well maybe he had a roving eye and women do tend to know you know you you know if your partner has a roving eye you may not think they're acting on it but you know when you're walking out with them whether they're looking at other women but her account after she did speak to Vogue, I felt was very authentic in that she was just absolutely roller coastering about how many women and what he had done to them and the fact that he traveled a lot. So he, they weren't together a huge amount of the time. But she said, look, I don't want to be seen as a victim in this. 
you know, I had a happy life. Now I realize it wasn't what I thought it was. And it's my children that I cry for. And it's my children. I don't want to be seen as a victim. Yeah. You know? And she did make that very important point. And I want to follow up on that because I just remember that I have another connection to this, which is that I know someone who worked with him pretty closely, a woman, for years. And I saw her after all of this broke. And she said, and I believe her, it was just the two of us at dinner. And she said, look, we all knew he was a cheater. We all knew that he cheated on both his wives and that was his thing. She said, but I was completely shocked and sickened by it. And, and I do believe her. I, and, and, it's, and, and I think it speaks to what you always say, which is the flip side of these guys, which is the, which is the charm and the coercion and all of the ways. I mean, look, he was an amazing producer. Like he, you can't be as successful as he was in building what he did without being really smart and manipulative is beyond having good taste, you know? Right. So speak to that a little bit in terms of how did he snow? How did people not make the connection with, okay, this is a guy who gets into fits of rage and throws ashtrays at people, but oh my God, he raped women. How is that possible? Like, where's the disconnect? Well, I mean, I think when you track people, people back and I always like to do the psychological autopsy. So the, so the first point is, yes, he was very talented. Okay. And people wanted to be around him. And by the way, psychopaths are people that, in the in the main, they can be exciting to be around. And here we have someone who actually on the psychopathy checklist would score very highly. And, you know, his ability to manipulate and charm and lie and deceive. Um, but it made him a very talented producer. He had an eye for things and, pe and an energy and people loved to be around him. So the more stars that were around him, the more people wanted to be around him. And if you were the star that wasn't around him, you wanted to be there. So this is all very, it's like an aphrodisiac, very intoxicating. Yes. Um, so he has a pool of people, girls and women in particular, who, you know, want to make it into the next movie or want to be discovered. And he is the person that can make that happen. And he understood that. And men too, by the way, he was seduced. I mean, I think the men actually, it was very interesting to hear one of them say, I think the development guy, you know, he, it was exciting. I, you know, I wish I could sit here and say that my time with him wasn't amazing, but it was, we were at all the best parties. We were at Cannes. We were, you know, it was, it was, he made things happen and people were attracted to that. So yep. people are conflicted. And I actually think some of the men who spoke out Schmidt and his CFO talking about how conflicted they were of women they'd, and girls that they brought into the company who they then found out had been raped and abused. And I think one of them who sits there and says, I mean, I brought her in, she made an allegation of, of rape and she was paid off and I didn't leave the company. You know, kind of how could I do that? But that's what happens when you're swept up, yeah. you know, in the excitement of somebody who is pathological yes. and, psycho and, you know, psychopathic. Um, but when you go back to his childhood, he was shy, introverted Harvey Weinstein, who was on the outside of things, who was determined to become the centre of things. And through college, some of his friends said, yeah, he was a very arrogant guy. You know, he uh, wanted to be seen as sort of the godfather, like a mafia kind of character. And so he had this hunger for power. And in 1986, when he's working and he his assistant is somebody who he is, uh, by his own admission, obsessed with, Eva Chilton, and he's leaving flowers, red roses, constantly at her workstation. And staff say to him, you need to be careful, keep leaving all these flowers for her, because it could be seen as sexual harassment. She's not reciprocating. But he wears her down. The war of attrition, right, which we know about. Is it romantic or is it 
actually fixated and obsessive behavior and stalking and wearing someone down because you are somebody who is very junior in the company and here is the boss of the company. Can you say no to that person? What's your choice? You, if you don't do and don't succumb to them, you'll probably lose your job. So if you do and you entertain that notion, well, maybe I could make this work. And a lot of women have to do that because it's their own survival. Now, you know, that's the part where people, where you see red flags starting, but actually then people put it down to, oh, well, she kind of succumbed and, and the romance and everything else that goes with that. But he was someone that everybody said would not take no for an answer. I thought it was really interesting when um, Zelda had the recording of him trying to get her back onto his side. I mean, it just, I think it you know, epitomized what you're saying, which is, hey, you know, call me back. It was like 10 messages in a row, mm. you know, call me back. I'm sure we can work this out. Hey, please, 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 please call me. You know, the begging and the coercing and, but but being really nice and calm, mm. you know, and, and she said, I had a feeling that I would need to tape this for the future. And I thought it was an interesting window into how he tr how he got people back. Yeah, and you know, abusers go around the power and control will, the tactic of complimenting, the tactic of putting someone on a pedestal, the tactic of uh, trying to show empathy or being apologetic or showing remorse, saying and doing the right things. But you hear that edge of desperation in his voice. But someone who doesn't take no for an answer, is that sort of an admirable thing or is that something people should pay attention to? Well, it's the latter, in my opinion. And, you know, he had this insatiable appetite that could never be quelled. And the gluttony, and I'm going to use that word because I yes. just felt even the way he physically represents is about gluttony, is about the more, more, more. Can never fill the hole. No. And that's what you also see with somebody who feels less than inside, um, but they're trying to project their more, more than, and therefore they put other people down and they treat other people poorly once they get into a position of power and of course that has happened across his whole life course and I think that journalist Rebecca on there wow wow I what mean, a story and I had read about that story oh you had but I I didn't and I I know her I'm a fan of her she's been on Bill Maher a lot and she's a fantastic journalist she you should start following her major feminist um but I to hear her tell it with Andrew Goldman, who was also a journalist who they were dating at the time, you can kind of sum up what happened and, and the way she's shaking. I mean, that was what was so striking to me from all of these women that, you know, one of them was recounting a story from 1978 and she could barely get through it because she was so shaken and in tears because when something that traumatic happens to you, you don't forget what that feels like. Absolutely. So Rebecca's story was crazy because it, it wasn't really sexual was. abuse, but no. it was just as terrifying. And a window to who he really was. Yes. And so just to go back to, to what you said about, you know, seeing so many women from Erica Rosenbaum to... Um, who else was there? Well, Paz, you were saying. Yeah, yeah to um, Hope D'Amour, you know, women who haven't spoken about what happened. And you really could just feel, I mean, for me, authenticity, oh, I could yeah. see it and I could hear it in the language. And I think, again, when people think about the situations where you are not just compromised, but where your boundaries are being pushed or where you've been assaulted or being assaulted, you know, the fight, flight or freeze is what can happen and it's the amygdala that makes that decision but numerous women described freezing 
So, you know, and... And leaving their body. And leaving their body, having an out-of-body experience and seeing, looking down on themselves. And, and that does happen. And that's a coping mechanism. And hoping for that five minutes, you know, if he's true to that five minutes, it would then be over and I'll get through this and then compartmentalise it. So, you know, for, for many of them, it actually challenged their notion of rape themselves because they thought that rape was about a violent physical struggle not this of what he was doing to women, raping them and the, and the psychological rape that went with the physical. Right. And I thought it was very interesting that the woman um, that he attacked in 1978 said, I'm sure in Harvey's mind it was consensual because if he got what he wanted, that was consent. I thought that was fascinating. Do you agree with that? Well, I do and I don't because I actually do think he knew what he was, I was doing was wrong. Me. Okay. And, you know, someone who... Uh, really doesn't think what they're doing is wrong. Well, why does he pay all that money for lawyers mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. PR companies to put a stop to what's being said? Why doesn't he front it out if he doesn't think that it's it's wrong? So I, I'm, I'm not convinced. I think what tends to happen is a rewriting of the narrative. And so that probably is what you're talking about. You can rewrite the narrative and then persuade yourself that it, it was something that somebody else, because certainly it's reinforced in the, the public narrative when people say, oh, those girls were sleeping with him or she gave him a blowjob because, you know, she wants a part in the show. So that all reinforces his narrative. No one's saying he forced them. He forced that actor. He was the one that did this. It's always she wanted a part in a movie and so she gave him a blowjob. So the language, the script gets flipped and yeah. that just reinforces he can do whatever he wants. But going back to Rebecca, I think what we what we understood from hearing her account, her and her boyfriend reporter Andrew going to one of the, the big parties. And I think what it the, the documentary really does set the tone of in New York at that time, the lush parties, the lavish and ostentatious lifestyles, the everyone wanting to be at these parties and him being really this magic maker. And Rebecca goes there with her uh, boyfriend reporter, Andrew, and she basically wants to get a comment on the movie O from him. And she puts her tape recorder up to his, his face and says, you know, what can you tell me about the movie O? And he said, well, I can't tell you anything because it's not my movie. And by the way, the reason that it was, con or he might have perceived it even as controversial is because apparently they were holding back the movie because of something political that had been going on at the time. I'm forgetting what it was now. But that the, that the studio Miramax had been sitting on the movie. Right. So it was obviously it wasn't a question that he wanted to answer because of that. So he sideswiped and he said that it was his brother's movie, but she gets the quote. She It wasn't what she expected and she knew that that wasn't right, but she was kind of okay with that. I got the quote. And as she's putting away her tape recorder, he comes back and he tells her that that was an off the record quote. Uh, well, she made it clear that she had a tape recorder out. Yeah, and f and for the record, you can't as a when you're a journalist, you can't tell someone it's off the record after afterwards. After the it fact. has to be before. Right. So she was within her right and he basically then wanted to get the tape recorder off of her and she refused. And he turned around and he called her a fucking cunt, a C-U-N-T. And who let this fucking cunt in here and started shouting at the top of his voice so that everybody could hear him. Now, and that, she's 23, by the way, at the time. Good point. She's 23. So she's young. She's, you know, new at her job and she's being spoken to now by the guy who makes everything happen. And as you said, as she's recounting this, she's actually 
visibly shaken, even just putting words to what happened. And he's yelling and screaming the odds and calling her a bitch and... And people are starting to look and her boyfriend reporter Andrew comes over and starts to quell, first of all, and start to, starts to assage him by saying, oh, Harvey, look, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about Karen. And, and she thinks, thank goodness, it's, it's over. I brought her along, but don't worry, you know, and starts to change the subject. Let's talk about you. She's putting her, her bag on her back. But then Andrew turns around and says, and, and he talks on the documentary and says, well, it just came out of my mouth that, you know, and you know, you owe Rebecca an apology. And then I think their words, because the, the the director flips between Andrew and right. Rebecca, I mean, seamlessly of finishing each other's sentence. But she, start, she starts to whisper and says, no, Andrew, don't say stop. this. Let's, she's going, stop. Yeah, stop, let's just go. And she's kind of whispering. And that's kind of her inner voice. Let's just go. We need to get out of here. And he's demanding an apology, at which point they both say the temperature in the room changes again. And then he gra- tries to grab Andrew and the tape recorder and puts him in a headlock. Pushes, pushes him, him first, pushes him down a few stairs, then takes him out to the street and he's in a headlock. In a headlock. And then you hear Andrew saying, it all felt very surreal. I, I was at this party in a headlock by Harvey Weinstein and he's punching me in the head and all these cameras are snapping. And he thought it would be on the newspapers the next day. But there was nothing. Nothing. Which tells you about power and tells you, and a lot of journalists will probably attest to that, which actually now makes sense in that the statement he makes towards the end of the documentary where he says, initially, uh, the reporters outside his house say, how are you, Harvey? And he says, oh, I'm not too good. So he now starts to play the victim card. I'm not too good. And, you know, I've really got to get help. And I've, I've really got a lot to work through here. And this is the start of a journey. I mean, everyone makes a mistake. I mean, you know, I deserve a second chance. He appeals to them. And then he starts to get in the car and then he thinks better of it. And he turns around, he says... Uh, but I've been good to you yeah. guys, and you you have to acknowledge that I've been good to you guys. So he's kind of saying, "Remember the time before, and once I get through this, I'll be good to you again." So careful of what you report on yeah. me. Well, was it's what like I a felt. mafia thing. It's like remember, I was you know I'm loyal to you. You better be loyal to me. It's that veiled threat. And this is a guy at this point with no power. I mean, he's got nothing left, but he still operates. He's so used to operating like that, that it seems natural for him to say something like that. Oh, yeah. And just that whole, you know, I made a mistake. Oh, no, you didn't make one mistake, fella. You made a lifetime of bad decisions, abusing women and girls over and over and over again. And you knew exactly what you were doing. So even to just dress it up and for him to claim the narrative made me really angry. But that's what we always see. We see them repackage the narrative. That's what he's used to doing. Um, He thinks he can talk his way through it. And that loyalty thing, you know, the boys club, I'll sort you out after all of this has, you know, been been sorted, uh, we'll be back on good terms. And that level of corruption, you know, there is a quid pro quo at, at times in relationships, but that is was a, a very clear, for me, threat to them of you know who I am and that's what he's been trading off but in a court of law he will be undressed and that will not matter and I think you know that's the important point he is now being treated for his criminal behavior because these are crimes that he's committed and I'm not just going to call it an abuse of power this is about male violence and abuse this Good. is about him coercing uh women many 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 of them I it's going to be in the hundreds and this absolutely is a man's issue 
Yeah, no, it's true. I thought I was reading a review in Rolling Stone and I thought that this was an interesting line that I wanted to talk to you about. If Untouchable does nothing else, it demonstrates how patterns of intimidation and the power to destroy lives flourish in systems that allow for the turning of blind eyes. It was just the cost of doing business with Harvey until thankfully it wasn't. So I want to talk to you about Mm. the patriarchy, the Hollywood system, sort of these systems that enable, I mean, the men, I thought I was really glad they interviewed the men in the doc too, and not just the women who were victims because they were all, they stayed, they stayed till the bitter end. And, uh, and I thought it was very interesting that, you know, for years people, I mean, I, again, I think Ronan Farrow's article in the New New Yorker, his first article on it talked a lot about, um, what they called the honey cups and the honey cups are the ones that were the assistants, male and female that would usher these women in and out. And the agents, when these women would go tell the agents, I just got attacked by Harvey Weinstein and he tried to rape me. And they said, don't tell anybody. Harvey's powerful. You'll never work in this town again. And so there's sort of systematically all of these people in the system um, who, again, maybe didn't know the, you know, the extent of the horror on this total scale, but certainly enough people knew enough things over the years. And and even Ken Oletta, who's a great reporter, journalist for The New Yorker and has mm. written several books. He was trying to do this story 15 years ago and no one would go on the record. And he feels horrible. He said, I knew about I heard about, you know, kept coming up, but no one would go on the record. Mm. And even Rose McGowan, and she really wasn't part of the stock. I think there were some pictures of her. You know, she was the one that had said years before this broke that basically all but said Harvey's name, that she was raped by him. And Mm. everyone thought, oh, she's kooky. She grew up in a cult and she was dismissed. But it turned out, you know, once everything came out, it was like finally people believed her. And he paid her 100,000 on an NDA to keep her quiet. But look at the picture. He would would say through his lawyers, look at this picture. She's smiling at me. And, you know, they kept showing that Gwyneth Paltrow smiling with him and Rosanna Arquette, all the women that later came to tell their stories. Mm. Because he would pay his lawyers to find all of those pictures of post the rape, post the assault. But people, Laura, people who don't understand the way it works will then look at those pictures and say, hmm, then I'm not sure who to believe. And talk about that, that sort of, you know, that manipulation that people, and I think they actually make the point in the doc, which is great, saying that people don't understand the way this works, which is, you know, again, with Anita Hill, why did she follow Clarence Thomas to his next job when he had sexually harassed her? And people don't understand mm. the psychology between this dynamic, right? Yeah, well, I mean, again, it's it's either a control dynamic, uh, money dynamic, but it's certainly a power dynamic. And the enablers, uh, as I always say, must be called out. Yes. The people who time and time again, made things go away and made people go away, have to be called out. And, you know, there's there's that part where when you're very junior in a job and, you know, there is the power imbalance. And, and I think the Lauren O'Connor said it best. You know, I was 23 starting out uh, and there's Harvey Weinstein, who is incredibly powerful. He gets 10 points. I get zero right right from the beginning. Yeah. So there are those who did try and call it out within his workplace and it was very career limiting for them and they they did have to leave and some of them did say, I can't work for you anymore and said to the brother, Max, well, um, and said to the brother, Bob, Bob. Um, that, you know, your brother's a monster. And when they were aware that it was just the next victim, the next victim, the next victim, and they tried to do what they could. So there, there's that 
where people do try and do things. And then there's others who take the money, enjoy the ride and say nothing. And that is a moral uh, and ethical um, and morally bankrupt um, person who basically just decides to turn a blind eye and to stay for the fun ride. And, you know, that's what happens when you get very powerful people. And, and I think it's a challenge for our culture. We build people up, we put them in those positions and then they become untouchable. And he, in his own admission, that's why the docus called it, uh, he thought he was untouchable, but nobody ever is. And it does take somebody like Ronan Farrow, um, who put everything on the line to follow uh, the women that he'd spoken to and to keep talking to women. And when... Uh, his own, uh, I think it was NBC, when they decide not I'm to publish it. Glad you brought that it, up, yeah. He then decides to seek out yeah. uh, Canaletti and, and see whether they would print the story. And again, it's this constant, it happened with R. Kelly. Jim yeah. uh, Derogatis had you know 20 years of putting together the pieces of a jigsaw. And it's only on surviving R. Kelly on the Lifetime docu where we as an audience get to hear what he was hearing day in day out from girls and women who were being discredited by R. Kelly and his team of lawyers and publicity machine because people don't want to go there. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Ronan and NBC because I'm assuming for lawsuit purposes or whatever, the reason is he skimmed over that in the doc because that to me is a very important point because again, it speaks to this whole enabling of the system, which is he had many, many women on the record, by the way, it was for TV. So he had them speaking in interviews on camera about what they went through. He had extensive reporting mm. and they just kept from the top. It just kept, we need more. We don't have enough. It's not vetted. We need more. We need more women. We need more credible women. Yeah. I mean, it's, know, there's no it was, such thing as a perfect. It, and it was shit. It, exactly. And, he, and the preponderance of the women should have been enough. And guess what? You know, they claim later that's not how it happened. And I, I think there's either a lawsuit or Ronan's going to come out with an article about what really happened because he's been he won't talk about it. Mm. And well, he's just written his book. Yeah, um, he's very busy. He, but I'm sure there's incredible. a whole other story and narrative. And of course, he had to leave his apartment. He was threatened. Yeah. I mean, justice seekers or injustice fighters, it it's your whole life. And I want to make that point and pay tribute to him um, and to the other women who broke the story. Um, at the Jody New York Cantor Times. and Megan Twohey. Yeah, but it, it, it's every part of your life. It's not just writing a, a story, a review of a movie. This is, you know, journalists who have gone way above and beyond and then are not being supported within the, the outfits that they work within. And again, why is that? Well, who are the people making those decisions? You know, because I do think there's a gender bias. And that is a critical issue, the gender bias, but also power and money probably exchanging hands and favours. And that part of the old boys club is uh, going to take a very long time absolutely. to smash the fucking patriarchy, quite frankly. Thank you. Even with law enforcement. I mean, there's stuff that the doc didn't get into with NYPD. I mean, they had a credible woman on tape that they did mention in the doc. Hearing Harvey, hearing her saying, you know, come in, I just want to feel your breasts or whatever it was. And luckily, Ronan published that with the audio in his article, but uh, but the case was dismissed. I mean, it's now reopened and there's a lot of cases pending against him. However, again, that had to do with politics and Cyrus Vance, who was the DA at the time. I mean, it's so dirty and it's upsetting to think that in this day and age, 
things like that still happen. But we see it with Epstein and, and Acosta, who, you know, that was a dirty dealings down there. I just finished the Roger Ailes um, Loudest Voice in the Room on Showtime, which is so many parallels to all of this with, you know, Weinstein and Trump and Epstein. I mean, just all of these serial predators that for years are hiding in plain sight mm. where everybody knows, but they don't know or they're not willing to do anything about it. And I feel like finally we're in a place where, you know, the combination of, I think, journalism, bravery and frankly, entertainment is bringing shining the disinfectant on it, and it and and that's the that's the best way to get anything accomplished. I think in our, in the way that our culture works now. Absolutely, and you know it's utter bullshit when people turn around and say, "Oh, we done with the Me Too movement now." What you someone know, said that? Oh, I hear it frequently. <laughs> oh God, you know what is that about? And people think that, you know, this is about women just coming out making claims. Of course, the positive effect is that people are talking now of the Weinstein effect. It's even been called that post right. Me Too of people sharing their experiences and wow, how powerful it is. And certainly for me, having worked in law enforcement, when you hear from not just one, you hear the same story and you can't tell which statement is, is which. And that's exactly why I've been calling for the register for serial uh, abusers for serial domestic abusers and serial stalkers because these guys do it time and time and time again and there's no holding them to account and so we do need to put further uh, legal remedies in place and and just to talk about the legal aspects of the case against him there was a new indictment on August the 21st and what's interesting about that is it's two further counts of predatory sexual assault uh, which opens the door to another victim who they there's basically five previous felony charges but the new indictment uh, being allowed now enables testimony from actor Annabelle Sciorra, right. a soprano actor who alleged rape from 1993 to 1994. Um, and now in that case, the statute of limitation had run, but her testimony is really about helping to demonstrate that pattern of behavior. Now, that pattern of behavior is necessary. Uh, it's a necessary element for the prosecution to prove the predatory sexual assault charge, where you actually need more than two women. So there are two women who have come forward and those charges have been laid but prosecutors have to prove that behavior the serious sexual assault was committed against at least two people yeah i mean it seemed again i, I i'm not saying this in a naive way but it just seems so open and shut to me like i can't i, I can't imagine a world where i mean michael jackson was a different story because people are so clouded by their love for michael jackson I haven't heard a single person in the zeitgeist say, oh, Harvey Weinstein's innocent. I mean, I just, I would be shocked if this guy doesn't go to jail for life. Well, let's see. I mean, <laughs> I, I've just been following the legal side to it where, of course, Harvey Weinstein's uh, legal team uh, are going to be putting sickening. up their, uh, their dirty tactic campaign. So they asked the judge to preclude the testimony of Annabelle Sciorra um, but Judge Burke actually agreed that the prosecutors could present that case to a newly convened grand jury. And therefore, Weinstein was indicted on August the 21st for a third time. Now, what's interesting about New York, because it's very different, actually, from the UK. We have similar fat bad character evidence that can be introduced. But an interesting uh, new rule has, has come in, and it's an evidentiary rule. And Judge Burke has allowed three other witnesses to testify um, alleging uncharged crimes. Wow. So they haven't been charged for. So this new evidentiary rule is called the Molyneux, and it's evidence of a similar past behaviour by Weinstein can be introduced to establish a criminal pattern. 
That seems huge. I mean, it's that's, really huge. That's in this amazing. Case. And actually, it was used in Bill Cosby's case, where very similar five prior bad acts that hadn't been uh, charged for acts. Those five witnesses were allowed to to testify. So again, it, it's the most important aspect in these cases because it shows a pattern, Patterns. and you have to prove the pattern. And for a predatory sexual assault uh, in New York, it carries a maximum of life in prison. So that the prosecutors are going at the upper end, and that's an important point to make. There are many other victims, and I do hope that other people do come forward because it it's so important that other people hear, you know, that it empowers women to come forward when they hear others telling their story. And that's what happened to Erica Rosenbaum. Well, exactly. I mean, people forget and they remind us in the doc that, that the Weinstein story was actually what broke me too. Hashtag me too. It's Absolutely. how it all started. I have one last question because we're, we're wrapping up. This was actually the, the question that kept coming back to me and I couldn't wait to ask you um, more than anything because I couldn't figure out the answer, which is, you know, we've talked about so many of these types of cases, big and small. And the the line that runs throughout all of them that we've broken down together is that there's a long process of grooming that goes on sort of before, you know, the acts occur. So what strikes me about him is that how little grooming there is, you know, uh, do you want to come meet me in my hotel person I've never met? Okay, you're here. Okay, I'm assaulting you now. Like, do you know what I'm saying? As opposed to he treats them really well for three months and then he goes out to dinner with them and then he puts them in a movie and then it just seems like wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. I mean, sorry to be so crude, but it, it just seems like there's no grooming. Like it's right to the rape. It's right to the assault. It's right to the, you won't do this. You're nothing. You know, I'll ruin mm. you. It, what What is that? Yeah, well, here's the deal. The grooming happens before they even meet. So they've already been groomed because they know who he is. They know is. who he is, right? Okay. So that process is already in play and he knows that. That's the power imbalance. And he knows he just has to exert wow. a coercive tactic like it will only take five minutes or just show me this. Do you know who I am in this town? I'm going to break you. I'm going to make sure you never work again. And then they see the true side of him. And incidentally, just looking at his face, uh, you know, we should post some pictures of him. Because I was wondering, I was actually going to ask you off my two very different things. That's so interesting. I was going to ask you off Mike, do you think when I posted I should have put his picture up because I don't want to glory I don't want to even put his face on it. But tell me what tell me. Well, you should put the picture of the women who have spoken exactly. out and, That's... and it's their truth and yes. it's their story. But with him, I see the left and right side is very different. And one's your private side and one's your public side. And what's interesting is his kind of smirk de triumph and his arrogance and entitlement that comes out. Uh, on his private side of his face, but the public side is a very different image that he's projecting. So that's why we say people have two faces. Yeah, right? they give off one thing, but they're st they're doing and saying something else Ex behind closed exactly. doors. Exactly. But this isn't behind closed doors. Yeah. He's kind of like R. Kelly, and actually watching. Uh, the documentary, uh, both of them in a short space of time, it's like watching the same thing, only yeah. we've got somebody who's white and kind of iconic and incredibly talented and trades off of that. And then we've got someone black who's incredibly talented and entitled and trades, knowing that those girls and women already know who he is. And the grooming has already begun even before they step foot in, in the room. Yeah. And he compliance checks, by the way. All of pre all predators compliance checks. Explain what see. that is. So it's little tests to see whether somebody will be compliant immediately. So admittedly, some of the women said, I just froze and I just I couldn't find my voice and I couldn't say anything. And then he raped them. 
okay, where others, he knew that he had to do more. And it, again, it weighs on how much somebody's desirable or not. But bearing in mind, he was away a lot and was grooming, abusing many, many. And that's why, you know, across his career, it's probably thousands. Thousands. Across his, you know, life course is now, yeah. what, 64, 65? Yeah, and, I, and I'm glad that you said that because I think what I want people to take away um and this is something that came up when the Me Too movement happened. Me Too movement happened, especially for men who don't understand it, is, you know, are they in it for the money? Are they in it? You know, we talked a little bit about this before, but to be able to talk about any of this is so painful and humiliating. And even if we can sit there and say, this shouldn't be painful, you should, this is brave, it doesn't matter. And so if you think that any of these women are coming forward for, money or for fame or for none of that happens. They're only going to get trolled online. They're only going to get attacked by people that say they're lying. There's really nothing in it for them to come out. No, and it's not a bullshit. How could they possibly all have the same script? Oh, exactly. You know, they've never met before. And that's the thing I always say with serial predators. Mm -hmm. You know, when I read statements of victims, what, they all got together in a room and they decided line by line in their statement. So how is it that they all describe exactly the same pattern of behavior, which incidentally is pathological? It's a pathologically rooted behavior. He operated in plain sight. He knew what he had to do. And, you know, other people enabled him and he was never held to account. So he just felt he could and he had money that he could just keep throwing at the problem. You know, all these NDAs that people had to had to sign. And they're scary NDAs. Really I frightening. Mean, Not we'll just for them, you. but for their therapist it's, or anyone who they spoke to. Oh, my to. God, that was insane. I mean, literally, it was like, if you tell your therapist this and it comes out, we will hold you liable. I mean, just just terrifying. I, I wouldn't speak. I mean, that part was you know, <sighs> interesting to me. I had in, never in heard that before. Yeah. And, you know, how can you possibly, you know, you go to therapy to get help and then your therapist can't say anything. You, you have to get them to sign an NDA. I mean, it's utterly it's insane. Uh, the coercive control aspect of that is insane. Whoever came up with that. You know, right. who are these lawyers who came up with this utter bullshit? And the other thing I'd just like to say about Georgina, his his wife um, or previous wife, because she's now ex and is divorced, is that people were blaming her. And I just want to make the point that she was not the one raping women. She did nothing in all of this. And I would imagine she was coercively controlled and she probably doesn't even know it because 52% of women don't know it. And the same with his previous wife and the fact that he was aware a lot. But why were people online blaming her as if she had something to do with it? He is responsible and only he. It's his decisions, his choices. And that's how abusers escape the narrative. And that's the thing that we need to correct. You know, when we think about Deborah Newell from Dirty John, I just want to use an example because we both worked on the show and you've spent a lot of time with Deborah as well. Um, you know, that if we just take the, the language narrative, which I just want to highlight, Deborah was abused by John Meehan. Deborah was abused Deborah was a victim of domestic abuse and stalking. And before long, John leaves the conversation. And in fact, then we start to blame Deborah. And then yeah. we start to say, well, why didn't she do this? Or why didn't she say that? And why didn't she? And that's exactly what's gone on with Georgina. And I'm really fed up and pissed off with hearing people keep talking about women as if it's them who should own the behavior. I know. And be responsible. The patriarchy is strong, man. It is so in it is so ingrained in all of us really from a young age that I'm grateful again for the last few years of waking me up. And I always considered myself a feminist, but 
um, I mentioned this to you on text that I might mention it if it was natural on the pod, and it is now in terms of how we change the conversation in small ways. Now, quick diversion, and we have to wrap up, but my husband is a big sports fan, and he's an Eagles fan from Philly, and they call the cowboy, the Dallas Cowboys the cowgirls, right? Because they're pussies, and they're, you know, that's the implication, calling them cowgirls. So he posted something the other day saying, oh, the girls are going down or whatever. And my blood pressure started to rise like crazy. And I side texted him and I said, you realize every time you refer to the Cowboys as girls, you're saying girls are weak and pussies. You have a daughter and words matter. Please don't say I'm being uptight or it's a joke because it's important to me and I hope to you to how girls and women are represented. And he changed it. And we didn't talk about it. It just Mm -hmm. kind of happened. And, you know, some people might say, oh, come on, stop. It's a sports thing. He's making a joke. But, and I'm not up to actually, quote unquote, uptight about, I mean, I'm, you know me, I'm pretty crude. I can hang. I could, you know, call them losers, call them idiots. I don't care. You can put down the stupid team. But to call them cowgirls, to me, words matter. To be derogatory. To be derogatory in a way toward girls. That, and, the, and the implication being that they are weak. That we're weak, but we're the ones who have the babies. We're the ones that push those out. We're the ones who have periods. We're the ones who have to actually hold a household together. And women, in my experience, are incredibly strong. And we have to be. So that language, thank you for calling it out. Very naughty, Brian. I'll call you out too. <laughs> but, but hopefully he's now cognizant of it. I and mean, he's that's, aware. And and that's and exactly the point, right? Is that we have to be here. And if people are going, wow, you guys really hate men. Well, sometimes, yeah. But what's the message to young <laughs> girls seeing those messages exactly. on Facebook? And that's the point you were making. Is exactly. It's around us, the patriarchy. I say it's like the weather. It's everywhere. <laughs> and it is. It's everywhere. And you don't realize it until you start to wake up to it. Right. And, you know, people do need to start to wake up to it because it serves nobody. It's in nobody's interest not to have equality for girls and women. And when we let abusers like Harvey Weinstein off the hook and decade after decade and now we're seeing that cost but the good thing is you know in a court of law he would not have all of that trapping around him he will have a powerful legal team and of course we have seen what happens when you have very powerful lawyers paid to 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 do their job um, and they will try and do everything they're trying to get the case moved out of New York they will no doubt say that he hasn't had the ability to have a fair trial well a lot of that is through uh, the the fact of who he is but he uses the media when it suits him and is still trying to use them so he is. it's a double standard it yet is again. but I do feel that he's been stripped of so much uh, you know uh, rightly so and that uh, I do feel confident for justice in this case so we can We'll all follow it, obviously. Speaking of following, where should people follow you? Because you have a very, you have an amazing podcast and a strong social media presence. So tell us where we can. Well, find thank you, you for asking. So if you uh, like other podcasts <laughs> and particularly real crime and real criminal behavioral analysts profiling real crime, you can go to Real Crime Profile. We're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Laura Richards 999 and I'm also on Instagram where I put pictures up. Um, so y- you can find me there at Laura Richards 999. Awesome. Thank you, Laura. Of course, we'll see you back for our next installation of The Serial Predator. Well, I'm sure it will, will Unfortunately, be the next case, that so, will be something new. Yeah, but thank you very much for having me on and thank you for the very real conversation. I, I always enjoy talking with you. So thank right you very much. Right back at you. Thank you, Laura. 